You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. Our scripture reading for tonight is from Mark chapter 8 verses 1 through 21. If you want to take a moment to find that in your Bibles, once again, that's Mark 8, verses 1 through 21. If you are able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves, and giving and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, in my lifetime, um, I cannot remember uh, anything quite like this invasion of Ukraine, and um, I have witnessed um, 
remember when uh, Russia, the Soviet Union was invading uh, Afghanistan. That happened in my lifetime, early in my life. But even in that situation, it wasn't a democracy that they were invading. It was another uh, kind of dictatorship. Um, I, I heard that since like the early 2000s, we've gone from about half the people in the world living in, in democracies to now about 20% of the people in the world. So that's not encouraging. And there's something about just the pure naked aggression of Putin and just invading this country with absolutely no pretext, no reason. It's really disturbing. And also, I think what's most disturbing is the propaganda and the brainwashing that he's trying to get the people of the Ukraine to think that he's liberating them. And that um, he called them like Nazified. He was saying that the people of the Ukraine are under kind of a Nazi leadership, as if Zelensky was uh, some kind of neo-Nazi. He's actually Jewish. He didn't know. So it's absolutely absurd what he's saying. But just the brainwashing that's going on there and getting the people of the Ukraine to be suspicious of their leaders, um, their democratic leaders. So um, that was kind of weighing heavily on me this week. And um, as Austin was praying, you know, and and I've been thinking about this, just how this is not disconnected from spiritual warfare. It's not disconnected from this passage at all. And the, you see the suspicion and the mistrust of the disciples and the Pharisees in this passage. And you see deep, this deep sigh of Jesus. It's one of the most emotional um, expressions in the Gospels. He, he sighed deeply in his spirit. And he was so worn out and so exhausted by the, the amount of suspicion that just kept coming at him. It's almost like a comedy routine where the disciples say, oh, he's, he thinks we don't have enough bread. You know, he's talking about the... the the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees where he's talking. The leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees is the mistrust and the suspicion that people have of his, of his father, of Jesus' father. And the disciples are like, oh, he's talking about, we don't have enough bread. You know? and, then, and he's like, do you still not understand? And he gets kind of exasperated. Uh, verse 17, I don't know if there's any place in the Gospels where he is this exasperated. I can see him just like grabbing his hair. Like, do you not understand? Do you not perceive? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And ears, do you not hear? Do you not yet understand? Why are you testing me and doubting my provision and mistrusting me? And I think that he saw the world, I mean, the whole scripture sees the world as this, uh, this essentially a democracy, a place of freedom that has been invaded by uh, this tyrant, the ultimate tyrant. Uh, This empire comes in, this brainwashing dictator, the enemy, the principalities and powers, and every day Jesus experienced the, um, the suspicion of human beings, uh, both of him and also of, of his father. I mean, he came into the world to end all that, to make us trust again, to take away that doubt. And so in this passage, we see both this incredible abundance, this provision. Uh, God so ca- uh, clearly cares for his people out in the wilderness and then right after that happens, um, the disciples and the Pharisees immediately turn to suspicion and mistrust to the very end of the passage. So I want to look at the, the way that God provides for us, just the abundance of his provision. And then in contrast to that, the enormity of our suspicion and doubt and mistrust. Um, first, the provision. Uh, in those days, in verse one, again, a great crowd gathered. Now, speaking of suspicion, my professors at seminary said there's actually only one feeding and that Mark got this wrong and that uh, Mark pretended there were two feedings. He split the one feeding into two um, and that there was 
just 5,000. The 4,000 was like this kind of uh, mistake that Mark made. But clearly in the text, it's two. Again, he, he gathered this huge crowd. The first one happened in Jewish territory in Bethsaida. That was 5,000. And actually, it uses a different word for baskets. They were small baskets. This time, they're wicker baskets about this big, just gigantic, you know, human-sized wicker baskets. So it's a different description of the word basket. And also, interestingly, in the other feeding, it's grass. They sit on the grass. And in this one, it's ground. So it's probably winter, whereas it was summer the first time. So the first one was in Jewish territory. This is now in the area of the Gerasenes. Uh, which you might know the story of the Gerasene demoniac. When Jesus crossed the lake, he met this guy who was possessed by demons, and he cast out the demons. They went to these pigs that ran down into the water of uh, Lake Galilee. That's, that's who probably gathered this crowd, because he's back now, and now in that region, and it's likely that the demoniac gathered all these people to come and hear Jesus. Even though they were Gentiles, they were not Jewish. They had never, they had never heard of the Ten Commandments. They didn't know any of this stuff that the Jews, all these gifts the Jews had, the uh, there are now thousands, and, and 4,000 is probably just the males, the adult males. So it could have been more like 10,000 or even more than that. And notice they're in a desolate place, verse 4. So they have come out to this desolate place like the, the wilderness. They're several days from home, um, and they have been with me now three days. So the spiritual hunger is really impressive to me, that these people were that desperate for teaching. It's kind of like uh, Lollapalooza or Woodstock, um, where all these people come for this, you know, out in the, mil- in the wilderness or Bonnaroo, and they come into the wilderness to hear all this music, all this live music. But in this case, it's Jesus just teaching. And I imagine, like, their notebooks are out, they have breakout sessions, they have conversations over meals. It's three days of teaching with uh, Jesus, and they're so spiritually hungry that they're not even aware of their physical hunger. They're not aware how hungry they're getting. They're not aware of what they don't have out there, which is provisions, basic provisions. And that to me is just kind of a beautiful depiction of these people and their, their desire to learn from the Messiah, even though they don't have a clue. And I also love that Jesus anticipates the needs of the crowd before they ask him. So nobody had to come running up to him and say, hey, we don't have any bread. These people are starving. He just anticipates it. And in verse 2, he says, I have compassion on the crowd because they have nothing to eat. And just shows how Christianity is not just about caring for our spiritual needs. It's not just about teaching the sacraments. It's, it's also about caring for physical needs. If the church is not caring for people's physical needs, it's not the church. So he cares. He has compassion on the crowd. He's already teaching them, but he has to give them food now. He anticipates our need. He's, so he's not like this absent-minded professor who's kind of fumbling with his notes and not even looking up at the crowd. He's like more like a, a nurturing mother who is watching her children and extremely aware of their, their facial expressions, extremely aware of every sign of hunger and fatigue. He is noticing them, all of them. And he also tells the disciples, some of them have come from far away, verse 3. Another detail, I just love that, that he is... Trying to get his disciples to empathize with him. Do you not realize that these people have come from a long way away to learn? And I want to feed them. Because I love them and I care for them. He's so solicitous for their needs. And he even tells the disciples, some of them would faint on the way in verse 3. Some of them would faint. If I didn't feed them, they would faint. 
So it's not even death. It's just he doesn't even want these little children who are with these Gentiles to even faint on the way home. So he wants to feed them because he cares that much about their physical needs. And he's so dialed in on the, the Gentiles that he barely notices his disciples' kind of panicky question, how can one feed all these people, verse 4? They're all panicky. And he just ignores it. He just plows through. Verse 5, he says, how many loaves do you have? Like, let's get going. Uh, how many loaves? He quiets the crowd. He's like, verse 6, he, sit, he gets them to sit on the ground. And um, he takes out seven loaves. And he gives thanks. And I can imagine what 10,000 people, uh, I don't know if you've seen a field of 10,000 people before, but imagine a field full of 10,000 people. And he's got these seven loaves of bread. And he's like, we're going to do it with this. And how silly he would look. How foolish to take seven loaves of bread. And then he gives thanks for them. And of course, the Gentiles have never seen anyone do this. Uh, to, to, to give thanks before a meal, they would have just rushed ahead and eaten, as people in our society do. You know, just the food gets there, you just start eating immediately. But he's like, no, let's first, let's give thanks to God. And so he's teaching them how to receive food with gratitude. And then he takes these seven loaves in verse six and he broke them. And I've got to imagine they broke into little tiny pieces, like little tiny little pieces. And he gave those little pieces to the disciples and they have these giant wicker baskets. The word in Greek is these, like for these giant baskets. And they set the baskets before the people. So I imagine he gets them broken into 12 groups. Each disciple has a basket. They go out to that with that little tiny you know, piece of bread in their hands. And they just seem like fools to go out there with a little piece of bread. And he, set, he wants the disciples to get in front of, the, of these Gentile people. So he's not like, it's not like a t-shirt blasting at games where he's just sending out loaves of bread into the congregation. He wants them right there up close and this is where the miracle occurs verse six it just says they set them before the crowd now if i were writing this story i would have all sorts of amazing details like all of a sudden the little tiny things of bread like grew like twice as big and they started expanding and um it was like a clown car they were just bread was just flying out of these baskets and uh, you couldn't imagine but but mark doesn't do any of that stuff he's it's amazing how the gospel writers are so understated about the miracles. Like they just, they just report it like a fact, like a very simple fact. It just, and they set them before the crowd. They set them, and, and that's, that's the full extent of the description of the miracle of the multiplication of the bread. Seven loaves of bread feeding 10,000 people. You can ask yourself, is that possible? Do I believe that? Could such a thing like that happen? Well, that's not all. Um, And I like this part, that after the bread, he notices there's some fish as well. And if you know about the the fish that people eat in that region, they're pickled, they're sardines, so they they don't have to be heated. Um, So he just looked over and he noticed in verse 7, the disciples had a few small fish. He didn't realize that the first time. And he's like, protein as well as carbs, this is great, so let's do that too, let's multiply the fish as well and it says in verse 7 and he said these also should be set before them now again the crowd's not even asking for fish and i wonder if he had had like baklava if he had noticed that one of them had baklava or some kind of like fig pastry what he said let's do that too like let's keep multiplying and i think the answer is yes he would have i think he wanted to multiply everything he saw in front of him 
Just like feed them all and give them good food. Not just bread. That would have been enough. But he doesn't just give them bread. He gives them fish. And I think he would have done more. Because the point is in verse 8 that they took up all the broken pieces left over. And there were seven wicker baskets filled with bread. And that's just to show God is like a super abounding God. He's not chintzy. Uh, He's generous. He doesn't give you just the right amount. He gives you more. Like why did he have to inspire and multiply seven huge baskets extra? That's the the beauty of this this story. Uh, The fish, the seven overflowing baskets. I mean, the Garden of Eden was not three square meals. It was not ramen noodles, PB&Js. It was um, Genesis 2.8. All sorts of trees grew up from the ground, trees that were beautiful and produced delicious fruit. So there was cinnamon. Unnecessary to have cinnamon in this world. God did not have to make cinnamon. Uh, there was sugar cane in the Garden of Eden. There were tea leaves. There was black tea. There was green tea. There were coffee beans. There were strawberries. Not the green strawberries you get in the store, but like a real strawberry. There were oranges. There was an apple tree. Uh, The Garden of Eden was just abounding with delicious tastes. I mean, food does not need to be tasty. Uh, It could be like the kind of food that astronauts eat. Tasteless food. Uh, It could just be to sustain us, but God wants them to taste all the flavors. Because he's super abounding. He loves food. He loves food way more than we love food. And when he thinks about McDonald's, I think he weeps. I think that just destroys him to think about people eating McDonald's. Uh, my son loves McDonald's. But it says in verse 8, they, they ate and were satisfied. And I love the fact that um, it says they were satisfied. You didn't have to put that detail in there. They ate and they were satisfied. It's that feeling you get after a meal where you've had a great meal and you've had enough and you feel really full. And it's a great feeling. And they were satisfied. And it's a very powerful phrase in an unsatisfied culture. We live in a culture where we tend to eat too much or too little. It's really hard to eat the right amount of food in America today. It's crazy, but it, is, it takes a lot of discipline to eat the right amount of food. Um, we see people binging or restricting um, emotional eating, you know, eating disorders, disordered eating. Food can be very scary to people. I think that 1 Timothy 4.4 is a really important verse for our culture. It simply says, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. So all foods are good. Uh, Food is really good. God made food to be eaten and food is not supposed to be scary. But in our culture, something has gone wrong and it's spiritual warfare because food is a spiritual thing. So all this stuff that we, we struggle with in our culture... And uh, certainly not standing above anyone and judging anyone. It's, it's in my life too. Uh, but the way we deal with food, God wants us to just eat and be satisfied. They ate and they were satisfied. There's something really important about food. Because provision is at the heart of God's greatness. Providing for us. He loves to provide for us. That's the first point. Now the second point, uh, the mistrust, the suspicion. I hope that you see as, as I describe God's goodness that the mistrust is all the more inexcusable. And the mistrust is, I would use the word satanic. Uh, The mistrust of God that we feel uh, is so dark. Uh, It would be, again, like a Ukrainian citizen thinking that Zelensky is like a Nazi, a neo-Nazi. The devil has tricked us into thinking the person that is our best friend and lover of our souls is actually our enemy. And that's the second point, is that we are so mistrustful. 
just even in verse 4, uh, the disciples say, how can one feed these people with bread in this desolate place? And there's a bit of an accusation there. There's a bit of an edge to that. You're crazy, Jesus. Why are you asking us to feed these people? Um, have you gone insane? Now, that might be reasonable if, if two chapters earlier he had not already done this. But that makes it unreasonable. It's an unreasonable doubt. Uh, verse 18, do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? Yes, they should have remembered. But that's the whole problem is we forget. We have the spiritual amnesia where we forget that God provided for us a thousand times. And the thousand and one time we're like, he's not good anymore. He's not coming through. This time I know it. He's not coming through. And we start catastrophizing right after he's come through. Uh, I know this so well uh, in my life, in the way that he has provided for my family, in worst case scenarios. And then the next time something comes up, I'm right back at it. I'm, I'm right back into catastrophizing and thinking that I, I'm playing out, you know, the way things are going to go and it's going to be awful. And this time it's too much for God. We just do that all the time. That's what disciples are doing. He says, do you not remember how I've always provided? Um, when you saw no way out and you were in the wilderness, I provided for you. I mean, 5,000 people and I gave that to you. And now you're doubting again. Your suspicion, this ancient primordial suspicion is deep within your heart. Um, it is at the root of your problem in life is that you're suspicious, too suspicious. Uh, back in the story of Exodus, one of the main themes of the, if, you, if you're doing the Bible recap, I'm doing the Bible recap. In the book of Numbers, we're in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, they're wandering through the wilderness. And the theme is over and over again, they keep grumbling. They keep doubting God. So this is Exodus 16 too, but when God liberates them out of Egypt, uh, he sends the plagues, he drowns the Egyptian army, he gives them miracle water, uh, he keeps providing for them, and then it says in Exodus 16 too, they, they grumbled in the desert and they said, if only we had died in Egypt, where we sat by pots of meat and ate our fill of bread. Now they were in slavery there, they were in slavery, but now less than a year later, they're doubting God and they're suspicious and they're saying, if only we had died there. I wish we could go back into slavery. I wish we could go back to Egypt and eat the good meat and these pots of meat. It says in Numbers uh, fourteen twenty, they tested him 10 times, 10 times. They saw my glory and the signs I did in Egypt and the wilderness. And they have put me to the test now these 10 times. So there are 10 times. If you look back to the story of Exodus and Numbers, they keep testing God. And testing is a strong word. It's not just doubting. There's a, there's a legitimate doubt that we have sometimes. Like Mary doubted when God said, you're going to give birth to the Son of God even though you're a virgin. She had a little bit of a doubt there. That's reasonable. Um, what is not reasonable is the demanding. Uh, prove it, God. You know, prove you're still with me. Do it again and again and again and again. I've got to see that. I'm not going to believe you have to pass my exam. As if God has not done enough already. And you think to yourself, if he'll just come through this one more time, then, then I will trust him. And the answer, no, you will not trust him because your need for proof is bottomless. It's like a boyfriend who's proven himself over and over and over or a wife who's proven herself over and over and over to be faithful. And you just keep demanding another sign. You keep demanding more proof. You keep asking for more. That's what's happening here with the Pharisees and Dalmanutha in verse 11. He's back in Jewish territory now. And the Pharisees came, and notice it's like they are pursuing him. 
So he just shows up to Dalmanutha, he gets off the boat, and all of a sudden he's like, attack. They came to argue with him. They're initiating this, and they are seeking a sign from heaven to test him. Now that's not just passive doubt, that's aggressive suspicion. They're attacking him with verbal hostility. Uh, They're treating him like a show pony, like do your little tricks again. Heal this man, turn this water into wine, multiply more bread, do something to prove to us. Write your name in the sky. Jesus, write your name in the sky. We, we do the same thing. We, we test him over and over again. He's just performed a miracle. They could have interviewed any of a dozen people around them. They would have heard about the miracle. But no, they just keep demanding a sign and testing him. And you look at his reaction. And you see the emotional intensity. And obviously this has affected him deeply. There's something going on here. Where it's like he's reliving the experience of the Garden of Eden. He's reliving the original human distrust when he and the Father and the Spirit were watching as Satan tempted Adam and Eve away from God. It says in verse 12, he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say that no sign will be given to this generation. Um, he, is, he is so frustrated Because his generation and our generation, all generations, we've just been so brainwashed by the enemy that we're so aggressively mistrustful that he is emotionally exhausted by just walking this world one after another, doubting him. He's like, I'm not going to give any more signs. I'm done with signs. He's so frustrated. Now, of course, in the end, he is so intent on winning our trust. Uh, he, he, He is so committed um, to feeding us in the most desolate places, in the middle of even our worst betrayal of him, that uh, even on the night that we tested him most, on the night he was betrayed, he, he did this thing for us where he said, I'm going to show you the ultimate sign, and the ultimate sign is that I will die. Remember, we love these rascals.